Our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 21, and we will begin reading in verse 33 and finish out the chapter, Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46, and that is our sermon passage this morning. This is the Word of God. Hear it, O children of God. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we ask you this morning that we would be not like the chief priests and the Pharisees who were incapable of hearing and who could merely perceive that the Lord Jesus might be talking about them. Help us to hear. Give us the faith, Lord, that it requires to hear your word. We ask, Lord, for your spirit to guide us. We pray, dear Lord, that he would illuminate our hearts and our minds to give us understanding. And we ask, Lord, that we would be sanctified by your truth, which is your word. Sanctify us, purify us, through and through we pray. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now I want to, as I often do, give a quick recap of the previous week's passage. Certainly our passage this morning takes place within that wider context. And so we need to remember, remind ourselves of what went on last week. You remember that Jesus in last week's passage, he entered the temple and he began to teach there. More than likely, he was standing in the portico in the outer uh, uh, wall area of the temple, right where he had cleansed the temple uh, the day or so before. He went there to teach after he had cursed the fig tree on his way in that morning. And when he began teaching, he was challenged there by the chief priests and the scribe, or rather the elders of the people. He was challenged as to his authority. They wanted to know by what authority did he do these things? Was he, by what authority was he teaching these things? How did he do such things as cleanse the temple? How did he think he had the authority to ride in on a donkey like a king? By what authority do you do these things? 
And in response, Jesus asked them about John the Baptist's ministry, about his, his baptism. By what authority did John the Baptist baptize? And you remember they hemmed and hawed among themselves. They discussed it. If we say one thing, he'll catch us in one life. If we say another, he'll catch us in another. And so they decided that they wouldn't say anything. They simply said, we don't know. And so Jesus, recognizing what they were trying to do, he refused to answer their question about his authority. Well, he told told these religious leaders a parable of the two sons in this passage last week. He told them about how the one son had said he would go and work in the uh, the vineyard as his father had commanded him to do. And the son refused to do it, but then later on did it anyway. And in that parable, he also told about the second son, who said immediately to his father, yes, father, I will go and work. And yet that second son didn't go. And it was clear that Jesus here was referring to those priests, those elders, and saying they were like the second son. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus gives the chief priests, and we learn in verse 45, the Pharisees, another parable. He gives them another opportunity to learn and to hear his words about them. And it continues the theme of the vineyard that began in the previous parable. But the message of this parable contains an even stronger warning than the one in the parable of the two sons, and we will hear that. We'll hear about that in a moment. As we work our way through this passage, I ask you to think on this, that the Son of God came and was rejected and killed by His people so that sinners who believe are given eternal life. The Son of God came and was rejected and killed by His people so that sinners who believe in Him are given eternal life. We've divided this passage into three sections. The vineyard and its harvest, verses 33 and 34. The wild tenants, verses 35 to 39. And the stone of judgment, verses 40 to 46. Again, the vineyard and its harvest, verses 33 to 34. The wild tenants, verses 35 to 39. And the stone of judgment, verses 40 to 46. So let's look at this first uh, section, verses 33 to 34. The vineyard and its harvest. These verses, 33 to 39, contain this next parable. It's about a master who, of a house who planted a vineyard. He constructed a fence or a wall around it. He dug a wine press. He built a tower for watchmen to guard the vineyard. And everything had been completed with regard to the vineyard. Whenever, after everything had been completed uh, with regard to the vineyard, he uh, brought uh, tenants in to, to take care of it. This was very common in the ancient world, still common today. Tenants would come in, they would take care of the vineyard uh, for the master. And the master in this parable, he goes to another country, it says. Now, it would take, from start to harvest, it would take about four years for a vineyard to produce grapes. So, around a four-year time span elapses in this parable that Jesus gives us. Well, commentators going back to at least Calvin, and probably before Calvin uh, in the 1500s, agree that the Old Testament background for this parable is Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. And I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read these verses this morning. They uh, have uh, a strong bearing on what we'll talk about this morning. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. And hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now I think you can see here that the parable in Matthew 21 that we're looking at this morning, and Isaiah 5, they're very similar, and it's apparent that Jesus intends for these priests and these Pharisees and all of those who hear it or read about it, they read this parable, it's, inten- it's, it's apparent that he intends for us to recall this passage from Isaiah 5. In both, the vineyards are started from scratch. From the planting of the vines to the construction of the towers to the building of the walls to the, the cutting or the digging out of the wine press or the vat from the stone. Incidentally, wine presses in Israel can still be seen, which were dug out of the limestone all over Israel to this day, dug out thousands of years ago. So, what is being described in both Isaiah 5 and, and the parable are, are realistic to what was done in the ancient world in establishing a vineyard. And in each passage, fruit is produced. In Isaiah chapter 5, wild grapes are produced. In the parable, the grapes are implied. Jesus says simply that the master, he sends his servants in to gather the fruit. In Isaiah, the focus is put on the wild grapes that have grown up in the vineyard. And God's response is what? God destroys the vineyard. He tears it down because of what it has produced. Well, the focus of the parable that Jesus gives us in Matthew 21 in these verses is on the evil tenants. They are the equivalent of the wild grapes in Isaiah 5. The tenants won't let the servants of the master anywhere near the harvested grapes. And though the master of the house won't destroy the vineyard in this parable, he will destroy those wild tenants, those wild grapes. And this sets the stage for what happens Next, in this parable. And so having worked through the first couple of verses, I invite you to look now at verses 35 to 39. The wild tenants, this focus is on them. The master, he sent his servants to get his fruit. And in verse 35, we read that these tenants took his servants. They beat one. They killed another. They stoned another. Uh, Stoning doesn't necessarily imply killing. And in verse 36, we read that the master does it again. Once again, he sent his servants to the tenants. More than the first, it says there. He sent three servants the first time around, and now he sends even more to the tenants. And over and over again, the master sends these messengers, these servants, to his tenants in order to regain possession of the vineyard, to get the fruit that belongs to him. But each time, each time the tenants reject the master's servants through beatings, through killings, through stonings. Well, in this parable... The wild grapes of Isaiah 5 have become the wild tenants of Matthew 21. In the parable's vineyard, the fruit produced are the evil tenants. They are the wild grapes. They are the Mustang grapes as we know them around in these parts. These tenants are running wild in the vineyard. 
But Jesus goes on to say later on in this passage that these tenants, these wild grapes, these mustang grapes are going to be harvested. They're going to be taken care of. They have completely disregarded the terms of their agreement with the owner, which in ancient times uh, could have been as much as half of the fruit that was produced by the vineyard. With each agreement, there was a certain amount that stayed with the tenants and there was another amount that went to the owner of the vineyard. And these tenants refused to give the owner what was due to him. They've forgotten their place. They have failed to regard the true owner of the land. And as verse 43 makes clear, the wild tenants in the parable are the religious leaders. These religious leaders in Israel, some of whom are the very priests and the Pharisees who are standing before Jesus right now. Well, you can recognize, you may remember as you've read through the Old Testament, that in Israel's history, the religious leaders were guilty of great violence toward God's uh, servants, the prophets. How many times did Elijah flee for, for his life? Jeremiah was regularly threatened. Zechariah was killed. The prophets were regularly in harm's way because of what they had to do, what God had sent them to do. And of course, the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist, his life was ended by a beheading. To be a prophet in the Old Testament was dangerous work. It was a dangerous job. But God persistently sent His prophets because as the, the second half of Second Chronicles 36.15 says, He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. He did this, He says in Second Chronicles 24.19, to bring them back to the Lord. He sent His prophets, His servants, over and over again to bring His people back to the Lord. But these people, though they were testified against by the prophets, they would not pay attention. They would not give the prophets the time of day. God sent His prophets to these people, knowing that many of them would be harmed and killed. And He did it because He had compassion on them. He had compassion on His people, Israel. This is the true nature of God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We read this multiple times this morning. You heard this over and over again. This is his nature. This is what he does. This is how he operates. Again and again, he sends his servants to call his people back so that they will bear fruit. And after the master has sent all of these servants, verse 37 says, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. This is the last ditch effort of this master. He sends his son, they'll respect him. But we know the rest of the story, they don't. They have no respect for his son, just as they had no respect for the servants that were sent before him. Verse 38 says, But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And so they took the master's son, threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. These men were overcome by greed. They wanted to take what did not belong to them. They wanted it for themselves. And they think, strangely, ignorantly, we might say uh, they were... Uh, somewhat crazy for thinking this, they thought that by killing the son, they would get his inheritance. It makes no sense, does it? And yet people hatch these kinds of schemes all the time. 
Now, this is ignorant thinking on the part of these characters in Jesus' parable, but it's the same kind of thinking that had been used by the religious leaders in Israel for centuries. It's the same kind of thinking. And it's the same kind of thinking that will lead to Jesus' death. It will lead to his death. Now, we have to point out here, the religious leaders didn't regard Jesus as the heir. And they didn't think that if they put him to death, that they would receive his inheritance. The religious leaders of Israel thought they already had the inheritance. They thought it belonged to them. They saw Jesus as a a threat to their little kingdoms that they had built for themselves. This power and influence and control that they had sort of carved out within the Roman Empire at that time. And they saw Jesus as someone who was a threat to them. They had noticed when he rode in on that donkey and the way that the people had thrown down their cloaks before him and laid palm branches at his feet and said, Blessed is is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They saw him cleanse the temple. They were aware of these things. They knew of what he'd been doing in, in Galilee for years. And they knew he was a threat. They were more concerned about their own little kingdom than about the kingdom of God. This is a true danger for Christians today, and especially for leaders in the church. It's a danger. There's a danger when leaders in the church begin to make the church their own little kingdom, their own little place for their power, their influence. It's a danger. It's very tempting as a minister to regard the ministry of the church as my ministry. Forgetting that it is first and foremost a work of God. It belongs to Him. Jesus says, I will build my church. The church and its worship all too often today becomes wrapped up in the personality of the pastor rather than focusing on the Lord. And I'm sure you've seen it. May you never see it in this church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders and your deacons. Pray that this never becomes a place all about the cult of personality. It's not about your pastor or your elders or your deacon. It is about the Lord. This is why we are here. Like the tenants in the parable, the priests and the Pharisees, and many in the church leadership today, we think only of ourselves and what we want to the exclusion of what God requires. So pray for us. We ask that of you, and we trust that the Lord will continue to lead us. Let's turn now and look at verses 40 to 46, the stone of judgment. After Jesus finishes telling this parable, he asks the priests and the Pharisees a question in verse 40. He asks them this, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now these leaders, they thought they had been clever when they, uh, in the previous passage, when they refused to answer Jesus' question about John's uh, authority. But here they walk right into this rhetorical trap that Jesus has set for them. They answer in verse 41, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Like King David, when Nathan told the parable of the stolen sheep, these leaders pronounced their own judgment upon their own heads. They invited the wrath of God to come down on them for what they had done. But rather than Jesus pointing out to them immediately that they were the ones, like Nathan does with David, in verse 42, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. We may expect him 
to be like Nathan. And so at first glance, this quotation from Psalm 118 seems a little out of place to us. But the parable, you remember, is about rejection. It's about the rejection of the servants and about the rejection of the son. But there's also something here that Jesus may be making a play on words. The Hebrew and Aramaic words for stone and son sound very similar. And so he may be, he may be making an, an audible connection by quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. And so in these verses, what Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, uh, he makes it very clear that this son who was rejected by the tenants is the stone that the builders rejected. And this stone has become the chief cornerstone. Now, the verse in Psalm 118, these verses are in the context of the righteous entering the gate of the Lord. That is, uh, entering into the temple to worship Him. Now, you remember earlier in chapter 21, there were children who quoted this psalm. This is the Hillel psalm. They quoted this psalm when they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were quoting from this. So twice now in the same chapter, this passage is being referenced. The chief cornerstone is the, was part of the architecture of the temple. It was an important component. It was uh, the stone, the sun that was rejected, will become the most important component of the temple structure. It is the piece of the temple that is absolutely necessary for the rest of the structure to be properly built without it being placed just right. The rest of the structure will be incorrect. It will be wrong. And when the sun becomes the chief cornerstone, as the psalm says, it will be the Lord's doing. And it will be marvelous in the eyes of the people. It's the Lord's doing. He's working against the leaders in the church, the leaders of Israel. He's working against them by placing His Son there. And so Jesus says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. If the leaders to whom Jesus was speaking didn't understand before, they ought to understand now that they are the wild grapes. They are the wild tenants, the evil tenants. And the kingdom will be taken away from them. It will be given to those who bear fruits. And especially in this wider context of the chapter before us, Jesus is speaking of the fruit of true worship. He's looking for true worship. And as the chief cornerstone of the temple, as the most important component of the worshiping place of God's people, Jesus has a right to do this. He's got a right to throw these men out and to replace them with others who will truly worship Him. But not only is uh, Jesus, the Son, the chief cornerstone, He is also the stone of judgment. Verse 44 says this, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Not only is Jesus the cornerstone, not only is he the most important part of the temple, he's a stone of judgment. And when his judgment falls on you, or when you fall on him, you will be crushed if you refuse to believe in him. Now much of the terrain in Israel, some of you have been there, you know this, most of the terrain in Israel, it consists of rocky outcrops of limestone. There are stones all over the place. The ground is littered with rocks, and there were limestone quarries which supplied the stones for the construction of the temple. It's cut uh, fairly easily. 
It could be shaped into all kinds of different shapes. But also it was mostly in limestone that the wine presses of the vineyards were cut. They were dug out and cut there. There are uh, countless wine presses all over Israel to this day that were cut from the limestone. They, they remain to the day. And it was on these stone wine presses that grapes were harvested, that were harvested, were crushed. It was on these wine presses that the grapes were turned into juice, which would later ferment into wine. This is the imagery that we're getting in this passage. This is the imagery that we have. But we also have to say that a stone could fall and crush someone. These religious rulers, and anyone else for that matter, can be crushed on the sun or they can be crushed by the sun if they do not repent and believe in the sun. We tend to dumb things down a bit and make Jesus this gentle uh, 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 weakling who doesn't do anything controversial. Everybody loves Jesus, right? He's the hero of, of everyone, it seems, nowadays. Jesus is a controversial figure. And the imagery we have here is a violent imagery. He comes to judge. And He will judge all who do not believe in Him. He comes as the stone of judgment. Well, the last two verses of the passage give insight into the thinking of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Verse 45 says that when they heard these things, they perceived that Jesus was talking about them. How could these leaders not know that Jesus was talking about them? They were spiritually blind leaders. So blind that they couldn't even recognize it when the son, of the, uh, the son of the master was rebuking them to their faces. They knew something was up. They were angered enough that uh, they wanted to arrest him because of what he was doing and what he was saying. But they merely perceived that they were the object of this parable. And what's more, they feared the crowds. And because they feared the crowds who thought that Jesus was a prophet, they decided at this point it wasn't worth touching him. And so it was better for them to act as if they hadn't heard what he said. And so they didn't arrest Jesus at that time. They will, very soon, but not yet. Well, just as the Lord spoke to these people in that temple, so he is speaking to you today. He's speaking to you now through his word. Do you hear Him? Do you see Him? Do you believe Him when He says these things? And do you believe in Him? This passage makes it clear that everyone, everyone must repent and believe in Jesus Christ if he or she has hope of eternal life. This passage makes it very clear that if you refuse to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be crushed you will stand under the judgment of a holy God. But remember this. History proves this over and over again. That's why we're at the year 2011 and Jesus hasn't returned. It proves this. God is merciful and He is gracious. He is slow to anger and He is abounding in steadfast love. He waits patiently so that everyone has an opportunity to repent and believe. 
He gives you this opportunity today, right now. If you don't know Him, if you don't trust in Him, if you're refusing to believe in Him, hear His voice. Repent. Believe. And you too will have eternal life. You will live with Him forever. You will worship Him eternally. You will be the sons and daughters of the Lord and He will be your Father. Repent and believe and receive an eternity of blessing. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the strength of the words of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray, Lord, that You would enable us to hear You. Give us ears of faith. Give us eyes of faith, Lord, that we may see You and know You. And help each of us, O Lord. Help each here this morning to repent and believe, trusting in You, walking with You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.